Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, episode 154, with a friend like Mussolini. Last time, Nazi Germany's, but really just Germany's, main continental enemy, France, was brought low. It was medals all around for the Wehrmacht, as well as the militarized SS divisions. And there was even talk of peace on the lower levels of the armed forces and the civilians, but with a man like Adolf Hitler in charge, that was impossible. All one had to do was to read Mein Kampf, and many copies had been purchased, but fewer were actually read. With France conquered, it was time for Great Britain, as in to admit Germany's predominance and to come to the conference table. But those chairs across from the Germans remained empty. Further, the constant and unflinching air defenses put up by the RAF let Hitler know there would be no understanding. It was war then. Actually, the two air forces of Germany and Britain had been going at it since the fall of France, and as Goering had promised his leader that the Luftwaffe would soon dominate the skies, it was now up to the Kriegsmarine and Wehrmacht and SS divisions, to be ready to do their part, namely the transportation across the English Channel and subsequent disembarkation of troops. So the regular army, along with the Liebstandarte and the SSV division, got to work, learning their way around life jackets, amphibious landings, and most importantly, not getting stuck on the beaches that Churchill had so recently spoke of. But the weeks went by, the air battles raged on, and yet the skies over southern England remained beyond German control. With this being the case, the elites of the Navy and Army lost their enthusiasm. That lowering of spirit went down the ranks, and the result was drills carried out, but only half-heartedly. But that pessimism also went uphill to Hitler himself. De Fuhrer had a love-slash-hate relationship with the British people. There was much to admire, and much to loathe, as they would not acknowledge Germany's mastery of Europe. So, as the days went by, the idea of Operation Sea Lion was nudged to the side. But Hitler's greatest dream, nay, his obsession, the destruction of Soviet Russia, of communism, of Stalin and the setting up of a German dominion in Central and Eastern Europe blossomed in his imagination. All the space and resources the folk would need to live out their lives to a degree worthy of the Aryan race was right there. In fact, as early as the last day of July, Hitler had told his generals to be ready to launch an attack in the East. Then, by mid-September, as Goering still had not fulfilled his earlier boasts, Sea Lion was indefinitely postponed. Not that it mattered to Himmler, whose Germany next victim was. Either way, he had his own work before him. As the mechanized SS units were still growing, more structure and organization was needed. Himmler moved men around, created new branches, but most notably, told his underlings that the SS needed its own command headquarters, basically what the OKH did 
for the German army. As Hitler had done from day one of taking office, Himmler put men in charge of these new offices, but was purposefully vague as to what exactly their boundaries were. This overlap created jealousy, competition, and the currying of his favor, just as he wanted. But not everything was rosy that summer of 1940 for the SS Führer. Theodore Eck was still determined to be his own man within his Totenkopf empire. Not only was he wasting time with keeping up relations with commanders of the concentration camps, but he was doing so to get from them what he could not get from the army or Himmler. The camps would request more men and equipment, as no one wanted forced laborers or political prisoners escaping, but then some of that material would go to Eck. Further, Eck went on with the new SS bosses as he had the old, by ignoring their authority. Eck would tell anyone who asked that he only answered to Himmler, even if Himmler told him to answer to other men. It was maddening, and it could not be tolerated. There was a war on. Not that this was the only thing Eck was guilty of. There was conduct unbecoming an officer. But, as he was an SS man, that was par for the course. But some of Eck's actions were likely to cause a rift between the Totenkopf and the other divisions. That could not be allowed to stand. In early 1941, Himmler wrote to Eck, upbraiding the man for his actions, and literally questioned his mental fitness. But these were just words. Then came the blows. First, Eck was completely separated from the camps and their administrations. Then he lost control of what units were technically his, but still working for the various camps. Then Eck watched as, one by one, his old friends and cronies from the camps were replaced with men loyal to the new SS leaders, just under Himmler. Eck's world was shrinking fast. But Theodore Eck didn't get where he was by asking permission or by not taking on opponents. No, instead, he went full steam ahead. First, he never deviated from believing that he only answered to Himmler and Hitler. Yes, others had higher rank, but Eck was the better Nazi. That was the basis of his superiority. Second, so there could be no question of his troops' ability political or military, he worked hard to improve their abilities. As for their mindset, that was covered with them reading indoctrination information, bound together in a two-volume reference called Sword and Plow. Moreover, Eck read everything he could to make him a better field commander. Between this and a few personal changes he was allowed to make, the leader of the Totenkopf's position was relatively safe, as long as he didn't fall short in the next war. Besides Eck's personal wars against the world, seemingly, Himmler's SS was in for, mostly, good news. The Liebstandarte SS Adolf Hitler was upgraded from a reinforced regiment to a motorized infantry brigade, with increased artillery and joined by an armored car company, a flak company, and additional engineers and signalmen. 
But the downside was many of these augmentations came directly from the Totenkopf and SSV divisions. Still more repugnant to Himmler, though it was out of his control, the SSV division, commanded by Hauser, became the basis for the Viking division. This entity absorbed the Germania regiment as well. To replace the Germania, the 11th Totenkopfstandart, previously a concentration camp guard unit, with a nasty reputation of ignoring rules, was brought in. Now its officers would have to strive mightily to turn those butchers from Poland into professional soldiers. By the end of 1940, the Viking division would be renamed, first Deutschland, but to avoid confusion with the Deutschland regiment, it would be changed again to Reich, and then Das Reich. Das Reich's new home was in France, near the border with Switzerland, but their mark on history was still in the future. With several Stendaten of the Totenkopf taken away from Eck, Himmler stepped in. Differences aside, they were mostly working for the same thing. For Eck, it was about his own prestige, but for Himmler, it was something much bigger. The Totenkopf were the men running his camps, and further, they would come in behind the fighting as an attack was soon to be launched against Soviet Russia. Simply, the Totenkopf were to be the tip of the spear in the cultural war against the rest of Europe. Hence, Himmler used his own authority to take several Stendaten of the Totenkopf and beef them up to make four of them into two motorized SS infantry brigades, the 1st and 2nd SS. And with this promotion, the SS 1st and 2nd would get things like trucks, motorcycles, and the like, because it would be their job to keep up with the raging German panzers as they drove deeper into Soviet Russia. Not that mounted troops were still not needed. Himmler had several riding schools brought under SS control, and it would be mounted troops under a Himmler loyalist that terrorized Poland early on. Villages were burned down, Polish men were shot, if partisan activity occurred near where they lived. With this, Himmler was pleased. When the war over France was at its peak, the regular army had finally realized some of the recruiting games Himmler and his subordinates were playing. As such, they refused to release some 15,000 men who had signed up for the SS, but were currently in Wehrmacht-controlled portions of Europe. Gottlob Berger, a Himmler top recruiter, complained to his supervisor. As this was mid-1940, with the SS still gearing up, to be denied reserve units would mean the end of the SS mechanized units before they could really get going. Still, the army did not care. Indeed, it desired such an end of the armed SS, so they would not budge. But then Himmler made a move that Hitler did not see, because it was something that he himself could never contemplate. As Himmler's views on race altered slightly from Hitler's, he thought it was just fine to bring in Volksdeutsch, or ethnic Germans, who happened to live in different parts of Europe, and Germanics, or non-Germans, 
but of Nordic blood, mostly the peoples of the countries north of Germany and the Germans within Switzerland. Suddenly, the recruitment possibility for the SS and SA was limitless. In truth, Himmler had this idea even before the war, as his war was against communists, the clergy, and of course, the Jews. But now it was needed more than ever, as the overall war seemed to be going Germany's way. And after all the shooting was over and the peace treaty signed, the war for who really controlled the Third Reich would begin. With such a long view, it was as early as mid-1940 that the SS Norland Regiment was established, with Norwegians and Danes filling the ranks, commanded by Stadtenführer Fritz von Schultz, and Deutsch and Flemish males forming the SS Westland Regiment, which at first was led by Hilmar Wackerow, but as he would die with the opening phase of Operation Barbarossa, it would be the Romanian general, Arthur Felp, who would command. And yet, recruitment was not what the SS officers had expected. For one, anyone who joined was seen as a traitor to their home country. And two, the worse the SS reputation got, the more stigma was attached to joining Himmler's corps. But much of that would change in time, certainly as Soviet Russia was seen as a threat when it survived the initial thrust of Hitler's in the summer and fall of 1941. As Hitler made the final touches to his invasion of Russia, his partner Mussolini shattered it all like a wrecking ball. First, the Italian push into Egypt had not gone to plan, but then Il Duce invaded Greece to create his own empire or the new Roman Empire, back in October of 1940. But the Greeks had pushed the Italians out of their country. Normally, this would have been something that Hitler, privately, could have laughed about. But one, it was important that this pact of steel seemed unbeatable. And two, since the British were sending troops to Greece, that put them just a little too close to Hitler's or rather Romania's Ploesti oil fields, the element that made his panzers go. Hence, Greece would have to be occupied, and the British pushed out. To get to Greece, the Germans would have to go through Hungary, Romania, and Bulgaria. But that would be no problem, as they had signed the Axis Tripartite Pact. In fact, Field Marshal Wilhelm List's 25th Army... 15 divisions strong, four of them armored, and with the Liebstandata Adolf Hitler in tow, were in Bulgaria, readying for Operation Barbarossa. Now, their noses were ordered to point south, towards Greece. But then, Yugoslavia, a country of too many nationalities, it seemed, joined the pact on March 25, 1941. This was important, as the German forces could now go around the Greeks' main line of defense, named after their recently deceased leader, General Metexas. But two days later, Serb nationalists overthrew the government, and one of their first acts was to pull Yugoslavia out of Hitler's pact. Hitler exploded in rage and wanted the country, its people, 
and the capital, Belgrade, taught a lesson. To add to its punching power, even the new Reich Division was pulled from France and told to join in on the attack, to be a part of General Reinhardt's 41st Army Corps in Hungary. Their goal was the capital, Belgrade. The starting point for the mechanized 41st Corps was Temesar, just beyond Hungary's northeastern border. But as they set out, it just happened that the SS Reich Division was next to the elite regiment of the regular army, the Großdeutschland. And military men being what they are, a race ensued. Who could reach Belgrade first? Of course, there were defenders in between the capital and the Germans, but they were only of a secondary concern. Victory would determine who was superior, the Wehrmacht or the SS. The signal to advance was delayed for a few days, so the reconnaissance unit of the SS Reich probed the area in front of them. Resistance was light, but more troubling was the swampy ground, as it had rained for days. On April 11th, the race, I mean the invasion, began, with the Deutschland and Der Führer regiments leading the way. The Yugoslav defenders were pushed aside as an afterthought, but indeed it was the muddy terrain that was the real enemy. As the first day went by, more and more vehicles were held fast by the mud, which meant the infantry units of each regiment had to go it alone, not that they allowed the defenders to get in the way. Fighting was furious and merciless. The SS had to show itself at least the equal of the regular troops. The Großdeutschland Regiment had taken a different path than the SS. It was longer, but less muddy. Yet the SS troops relied on their physical training to overpower the mud, and they arrived at their first day's destination just before the regular army units. Victory on that day went to the SS. However, as they had went at such a pace, their artillery and vehicles were left behind, not so of the Wehrmacht troops. So when the second day got underway, the SS Reich was told to wait for their support troops to catch up. In fact, those units would come in right behind the Großdeutschland. The race, though not technically over, seemed to be already determined. And yet, even ahead of the infantry of Der Führer Regiment was its reconnaissance battalion. It, too, was told to wait. But, supposedly, ten men of a motorcycle patrol had not received that order. And as they were under the bold Hauptsturmführer Fritz Klingenberg, he led the small party forward. That same day, they reached the Danube, found a small boat, and used it to cross over with their motorcycles. Klingenberg could feel how tenuous the city was being held by Serbian troops, and the race was still on. It was time for audacity. The ten SS men moved further into Belgrade and found a German official previously posted there. Together, they all met with the mayor of the town, and Klingingbird convinced the frightened man that the nine men with him were only the advanced guard of the German army, 
And if the mayor did not surrender that day to him, well, the town would be shelled, bombed, and invaded, and no mercy shown. Under such duress, the mayor signed a surrendering document at 6.45 p.m. The SS had won the day and the race. Further, the small band of SS men had boats waiting on the city side of the Danube to ferry over the men of the Grossdeutschland Regiment, who were in shock from more than just losing the race. Klingenberg was given the Knight's Cross by Hitler himself, while the mayor of Belgrade, humiliated, killed himself. As for Yugoslavia, its soldiers that resisted were imprisoned. Ethnic Germans were encouraged to volunteer into the Reich Division, but so too were Germanics. It was time to once again focus on Greece. Field Marshal List's 25th Army would make directly for Greece, while the 9th Panzer Division, along with the Liebstandarte, would hit the Greek Anglo line on its left side. Like the Gin Drinkers line of Hong Kong, one solid hole would make the entire defensive position untenable. Working against the 9th Panzer and the Lieb was British General Sir Henry Wilson. The men under him, British, New Zealanders, and Australians, had been rushed over from North Africa. Yet being rushed, they were ill-equipped for this very unlike desert weather. On April 11th, the soldiers of the 9th Panzer and Lieb tried to penetrate the Klondike Pass to gain further access south, but the Commonwealth troops held them back. With this not working, flanking attempts were made, but this was never a recipe for taking a path. No, another direct charge would be needed, and leading that charge would be the Liedstandarte's Kampgruppenführer Fritz Witt and his 1st Battalion. To maximize his chances, Witt was given a wide range of artillery, including the anti-tank 8.8-centimeter guns. Further, a Pioneer Battalion was added to clear mines. They would stay just behind the fighting and repair the roads that led to the pass. Lastly, Panzer Mark I's would participate, but their normal turrets were replaced by Czech 4.7-centimeter anti-tank guns, which would prove invaluable. Leading the direct charge on April 12th was the Liebstandarte's first company. These men, all physically perfect, had once been the original bodyguards of de Fuhrer himself. It was said that a single cavity could get them dismissed from the unit. Inch by inch, they advanced, over, around, and under rocks of all sizes, all the while under heavy fire. But then the modified panzers came forward. Between them and the 88-centimeter guns, the suppression fire of the Germans outmatched the British effort. As the first company demonstrated its bravery, no less, the pioneers were right behind them, removing mines also while under fire. The first company made their way and reached the village of Klondai, pushing the British out. The Commonwealth troops reacted to this by sending in an armored counterattack, but the towed 8.8-centimeter guns wiped out 
all eight British tanks. These invaluable guns, used in most theaters of war, were known to the Allies as 88s. Now that the Klondike Pass was in German hands, the British left flank was about to get hit hard. But during the fighting, General Wilson had pulled his men back to avoid getting outflanked. With the left of center of the British defensive line that protected Greece beginning to crack, even further left or west, Kurt Meyer and his reconnaissance battalion were trying to do the same thing at the Klaisura Pass. But again, the Greeks were on a dominating height, shooting down at the Germans. However, the latter had their 88s. With this suppression fire, Meyer and his men were able to move ever closer to the main Greek position. As the sun went down on April 13th, the attackers were just a short way from the Greeks. The next day, Meyer broke his unit into three groups and, moving away from each other, were told to hit the central Greek location all at the same time. But still, the Greeks' larger guns were keeping the Germans at bay. At one point, Meyer, with many of his men, were pinned down. With Greek machine gun fire flying over their heads, the reconnaissance unit was loath to rise and attack the defenders head-on. But Meyer found a way to motivate them. Pulling out a grenade, he showed it to all the men around him. Then he pulled the pin and dropped it at their feet. First, Meyer was up and over, followed by his men. This unorthodox tactic worked, as Meyer's group was about to hit the Greeks roughly at the same time as the other two groups. This victory would ultimately lead to 12,000 Greeks being captured and an impressive supply of gasoline for the Liebstandata SS Adolf Hitler, especially for Meyer's motorcycle reconnaissance battalion. By mid-April, the Greeks were falling back, quickly and in a barely controlled fashion. Meanwhile, the Commonwealth forces were retreating as well, readying to leave the Greek mainland in the hands of the Axis powers. But then came the greatest moment for the entire SS organization so far. On April 20th, Emir Kampfgruppe sent a message to his superior, Dietrich, commander of the Liebstandata SS Adolf Hitler. Though garbled, it basically said the entire Greek army wanted to surrender. Though Dietrich was only a divisional commander, he began negotiations with the general. After this was all worked out, Dietrich sent the document to Field Marshal List, and he sent it to Hitler. They were all overjoyed. Well, that is, except Mussolini. This had been his war, after all. Hitler would have to smooth this over with Il Duce, but Dietrich had to be officially admonished. Thus, Der Fuhrer sent Dietrich the following message. You are a good, brave soldier, but no diplomat, and still less a politician. You forgot that we still have a friend called Mussolini, and he is angry. Either way, it was time to get back to Operation Barbarossa. 